Amen. If you will, open your Bibles uh, to the book of Isaiah, uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, there in Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse 1, and we're going to read that entire chapter. Again, the book of Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin in just a moment in verse 1. Uh, today is, is rightly thought of as uh, the uh, beginning of what we might loosely refer to as the holiday uh, season. It is, it is appropriate uh, for Thanksgiving uh, to be the, the first uh, among the holidays in that uh, we certainly uh, would give thanks uh, for uh, that in the realm of uh, material goodness provided uh, by our God. But most importantly, and even if this is a season, even a long season of a frowning providence. We have reason to give thanks because our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, entered into our realm. He became incarnate. There is Christmas to be celebrated because Jesus came and He was born and placed in a manger for the purpose of living and dying to be placed upon the cross for our salvation. Not only for our salvation, but more importantly, for the glory of Almighty God, the thrice holy God who creates and saves. And so we can indeed, despite the realities of life in a fallen world, despite the presence of this frowning providence, we can indeed say thanks to our God who has revealed Himself for our salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. The overarching conviction that informed and defined the various doctrinal affirmations that unified and galvanized the uh, Protestant Reformation can be summarized in the final sola that we shall consider today. Uh, the phrase uh, sola deo gloria, to God be the glory alone is a statement that rightly asserts that the purpose of biblical revelation is God's glory. God reveals Himself as infinitely glorious and that all of His actions and activities are done for the purpose of making His glory known in all and to all of His creation. A corollary of that affirmation is that God gives to those whom He saves the ultimate purpose in this life of living for the glory of God. As the Westminster Confession asks and answers, what is the chief end of man? Why do you live? Why were you created? What is your purpose? The answer, to know God and enjoy Him forever. God makes Himself known for the sake of His glory. He saves sinners by His grace through the work of His Son on the cross, through faith in His Son. He does this for our eternal good 
and for the sake of His glory. God is glorified by saving sinners. Salvation is the reality of God graciously condescending to sinful man for the purpose of them coming to know something of His glory. As we have seen previously, every aspect of salvation is all of grace and it's done so that God will be glorified. For those He saves, the vexing vanities of a Christless life are removed and replaced with the reality that all that is done can be done for the glory of God. Every legitimate purpose, goal, and activity can be done for the eternal benefit of bringing praise and honor to God. One of the liberating recoveries of the reformers was that the butcher, uh, the baker, the candlestick maker, that is those that we would call the laity or lay uh, persons, could freely and joyfully pursue our craft, gifting, calling, and duties, no matter how common or mundane, knowing that we could truly glorify God in our endeavors. The classical composer Johann Sebastian Bach captured this sentiment as he signed all of his compositions with S-D-G, Soli Deo Glory, to God be the glory alone. Read with me, if you will, our text from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his feet, with two he covered his uh, feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go uh, for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses are without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst 
of the land. And though a, a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Pray with me. Father, once again we thank you for your word, your truth, your testimony of the reality that you are holy, that you are glorious, and that you will be honored, that you indeed are worthy of praise. May we, through that which is preached, that which you have given to us, Lord, I pray that we would see your glory. And God, that we would be so transformed that the end result is indeed, here I am, send me. Again, for the good of your people and for the sake of your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go into the text for these first few minutes. Uh, I think it's a familiar text to you. I have preached uh, from it on uh, any number of occasions. Typically, I will refer to it as, this is my paradigm for worship. That is, whether you can think of worship as private worship in, in, in your prayer closet, in, in the quiet of your own home, or whether you think of it as that which we have gathered for today in the corporate sense. You should think about this as somewhat of a, a paradigm by which you should think about the realities of worship. And I'm going to give you several words. If you want to jot them down, this is where I would normally go, but I think you may find them useful if you want to go back and devotionally uh, consider uh, the passage. There is, first of all, the reality of condensation. God condescends to reveal Himself. Even this glorious holiness that is visible to the prophet Isaiah is a condensation of Almighty God because no man can see his face and live. So, from condensation to comprehension into conviction through confession for the sake of consolation unto commission. So you can take those words and you can walk through uh, the passage just like, if, if we're going to worship the right God in the right way, this is the process, so to speak, okay? This, this is what we go through, that, that, that God must reveal Himself. And to reveal Himself, He must, by definition, condescend to the way in which we can understand Him. Now then, I am not suggesting to you today that I want you to see some kind of visual image of God up here, for that would be what? Idolatry. What I'm saying is through the proclamation of the Word of God, the eyes of your heart will be so enlightened that in a sense you see in your heart of hearts the reality of the glory of Almighty God. And so from condensation to comprehension, through conviction, into confession, for the purpose of consolation, for the sake of the commission. Here's the litmus test for you. You want to know if you've worshipped today? If you leave here complaining about this or that, if you leave here uh, remarking on the, the poor quality of the sound 
or the lighting. If, if, you, if you leave here today, even, did you get the Holy Ghost goosebumps? I did. If that is the subject of discussion, you didn't worship. Here's the litmus test. Here's the litmus test. Whether worship in your closet, alone in your quiet time, or gathered here. The end result of worship is always, here I am, send me. I've had an encounter with the God who is sovereign and powerful, and He has so changed me that all I can say is what? Here I am, send me. Now that's not exclusive of the steps that I've just mentioned. But just to give you a litmus test, if you do not leave here with, here I am, send me, you're either being judiciously hardened, believer or unbeliever, Okay? Or you're being transformed to make that response. And so, Isaiah is a godly, he's a holy man. He's been about the business of being God's prophet in the, the nation of Judah, that southern kingdom. This is about 200 years after the kingdom split. And this king Uzziah that he re references has died or is in the process of dying as this uh, encounters. They are having a national crisis. Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. If I go back 52 years, it takes me back to the Nixon administration. That is the first national election that I had any involvement with. And let me tell you this, I probably can't tell you who ran against whom and with whom in any national election since, but I can tell you that Richard Nixon defeated Hubert Humphrey and the former governor of Alabama, George Wallace, in the 1968 election. And so from that time until now, which, which means that for 52 years there was one ruler in Judah. I don't know how many presidents we've had in 52 years, but it's a whole bunch of them, okay? And so there were people, most of the people alive had never known of a king other than Uzziah. And that he has died is the cause of national lament and national concern as to what is next. But in the midst of that uncertainty, notice there the first Lord, verse 1. Notice how it's printed in your Bibles. Capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That's a translation of God's name as Adonai, sovereign one. Yes, your earthly sovereign has passed over the off the scene, but the heavenly, eternal, ultimate sovereign one is still on the throne. That's good news. That's good news. And so, he sees the ultimate sovereign one as ruling and reigning. Why? Because he's on the the throne. And his glory is filling the temple, whether it's simply a vision that, that occurred in the earthly temple or a vision that, that occurred outside of the earthly temple and just kind of in the heart and mind of Isaiah or whether he was transported into heaven. I, I don't know. That's not, not really the issue here. He had an encounter with the holiness of God. And we see here Similar to what we see in Revelation 4 and 5, we get this vision of heaven, of these splendid beings named here as the seraphim, the burning ones, the bright ones, the ones that are colossally illuminated by the glory of God. And so they are gathered around the, the throne, appropriately confessing the greatness of the sovereign Lord who sits upon that throne. 
And we see their confession. And this is going to be our focus. I'm going to work through the passage. But verse 3 is kind of where we're camping out for the sermon here in just a moment. They cry, holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Distinct, separate, other than is the God who rules and reigns. Thrice holy is the Holy One of Israel. Theologians call that the Trisagion. Okay? And, and it is the way that in Hebrew you emphasize the superlative degree in grammar. We speak here of uh, good, uh, good, better, and best, or hot, hotter, hottest. Okay, hottest being the superlative. In Hebrew, you repeat it. And to repeat to the third degree is to express the ultimate and the superior holiness of Almighty God, the Lord, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, translating that holy name by which God revealed Himself in the burning bush to Moses, Yahweh. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the nation. And so, their, their anthem, and what we want to answer here today is the question, the anthem is the whole earth is full of His glory. Well, in what way is the thrice holy God revealing His glory that it, in such a way that it fills the earth? And so, in all of this, even the, 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 the temple building is shaken by the, the glory of Almighty God. And Isaiah's response is, this is so cool. You know, I think we want to bottle this and capture this, and this is really a nice thing. And I'm like, no. Woe is me! I am undone! I, my translation, I am lost. And, and over the course of that that. I am coming apart at the seams. I am wrecked. I am ruined. I will never be the same. I cannot handle this. And so, he proclaims the great reality. I'm a sinner. When you encounter the holiness of God, it's not, oh, ain't that cool. It is, what a wretched man that I am. I, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've made a comment many times. Biblical preaching pr brings you to this moment. Why do people not listen to biblical preaching? Because this is uncomfortable. They hear this. They feel the convicting weight of the revelation of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, and they go, that preacher's mean. I quit. I'm going to daydream about what I'm going to do after church. But if there's going to be worship, you must always, every time, go from the comprehension of the truth of the holiness of God through the process of conviction. But that's not where you stay. Because it is after conviction we experience the reality of consolation. What's the good news? Your sins are atoned for. Now, Isaiah didn't even fully understand what all that meant in terms of, of atonement. He knew something about blood sacrifices, and he would write about one that would come, that would suffer, and, and, and through the bearing of our iniquities, he would, he, would, he would save many. But he doesn't fully get it. But we do. We know how it is that our sins are 
atone for. That is, that, is, that is good news. That is the consolation that comes to us again as we encounter the holy. And so what does he say? Here I am. Send me. Having heard the good news, every Sunday what should we hear? The good news. And our response is, okay, that was nice. Our response is, here I am, God. That I, I am a man of unclean lips. I know what that is. And my sins are atoned for. Here I am. Send me. Now again, and, and, and of course the really great news is, well, you're going to go out and you're going to make this appeal and the response is going to be they're going to hate you for it. You're going to keep preaching this message until the earth is scorched everywhere you preach it. You're, in fact, there are going to be men who follow you that preach this message for what, the next 160 years, is it? And then I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. The temple will be raised and most of my people will be deported to Babylon. But there is ultimate good news, is there not? What's the upshot? Look at the last line. This has happened according to my purpose as a statement, as a revelation, as a reality of the working out of my sovereign, gracious glory. That yes, the earth is going to be scorched, but I'm going to preserve a remnant. And out of that remnant is going to come this holy seed. That holy seed has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. Again, a messianic, prophetic message. You're going, and, and, and all of the things that are going on around you, as, as sorrowful as they're going to be, I'm going to be faithful because I'm Yahweh. I am the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. And because that is true, indeed, I will preserve a remnant for the sake of the Holy Seed. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, and to ourselves as the holy triune God that we're going to redeem a people through the Holy Seed. So, focus today primarily, verse 3, this great confession that the whole earth is full of the glory of the thrice holy Lord of hosts. And so we, we ask him, in what way is the whole earth full of the glory of God? The, the very fabric of the cosmos is woven with the embedded testimony to the glory of the Creator. The psalmist would write in Psalm 19.1, you don't have to turn there, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Everything about creation is a testimony to the glory of its creator. When we state that God's purpose for his redeemed image bearers is they hear of God's glory, that they will see the, 
visible testimony of God's glory, that they experience the power of His glory and redemption, that they give full confession to God's glory, and that they live with the explicit purpose that God's glory may be manifested in all they do. God has invited us through His Son, Jesus Christ, to live within and for that great purpose. And so, let's look, first of all, God is glorified in His Godness. I got tickled this week as we were finishing up, uh, getting all the stuff necessary, the paperwork and everything ready to to bring in here for for our worship. Uh, Drew came in my office and said, is this right? And how many times have you thanked God for spell check? Okay, because what I had typed, God is glorified in His Godness, which got corrected as God is glorified in His goodness, which is a true statement, okay? It's a true statement. But that's not the statement that I wanted to make. I want you to to hear and I want you to understand that God is glorified in His Godness. God is glorious in His essence as Almighty God. God is the eternal God. He is and always has been and always will be the one and only true God. There were none before Him. And there will be none that come after him. He has no rivals and no one else in this singular category of God. He he stands distinct from his creation, and yet he is intimately involved and sovereignly present in his creation. He is the infinitely superlative one. He is the uncaused cause of all that is. While his uniqueness isn't the only glorious thing about God, he is the one-of-a-kind king and glories and is glorified in his superb singularity. Therefore, all that he says and all that he does is a demonstration of his glory and of his purpose for that glory to be made known and to be praised by those he has redeemed. Again, that is why the seraphim sang, the whole earth is full of his glory. God is the eternally infinite, glorious triune God. The one true God is one in His perfect nature and three in the perfect persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through God's eternal distinctiveness, the three persons of the Godhead work in perfect and complementary unity toward their ultimate purpose. They are all equally glorious and each individually and collectively are infinitely worthy of our praise. The essence and the activity of each, whether viewed individually or viewed as the perfectly harmonious and unified activity of the three persons of the Godhead, are glorious. That's why they said the whole earth is full of His glory. God's glory is manifested in His attributes. His attributes testify to the glorious perfections of our God. God's holiness, His love, His justice, His excellence... His wisdom and His other attributes are revealed in the activities of each person in the Godhead. Uh, These attributes are most readily but not exclusively seen in His work of creation and redemption. In power, He judges. In wisdom, He rules and reigns. In love, He saves. In justice, He judges. One of the unifying themes of Scripture is the glory of God. It is right that God acts for His own glory. 
He reveals himself as glorious for the sake of that glory. He reveals and acts in creation, time, space, matter, and history. He redeems those that bear his image so that they will recognize and rejoice in the glory of God as the people called and created for his own glory. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 for just a moment. It seems like Paul wants to make a point. As he wrote these first few verses, and sometimes as I read them, I wonder if he even took a breath as he dictated to whoever it was that wrote these things down. But what you see is the emphasis that every aspect of salvation is to the praise of the glory of God. Why are you here today? Why did God create you and why did He save you? For the praise of His glory. Simple answer. Simple answer. Praise of His glory. Look here. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless uh, before Him. In love He predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Look at verse 6. What? To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He do what He did in eternity past? For the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption uh, through His blood. What God did in eternity past to the praise of His glory. What God did in His Son, Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the, the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. I'm going to save people. I'm going to save them for my own glory. I've established that. I've accomplished that. You're going to see that in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, walks, works all things according to the Counselor's will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. To join with the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, when, when you heard the gospel, when the gospel was proclaimed, the, the gospel is the proclamation of the, the glory, the sovereign, glorious purpose of Almighty God accomplished through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So we see, again, that God saves sinners so the whole earth will be filled with His glory. And so, we can see uh, this going on in, in, uh, in that, that God is simply glorious. He doesn't have to do anything. He is glorious just because of who He is. Second thing, God is glorious in all of His activities. You don't have to turn there, but one of my favorite places in the Bible is Revelation 4 and 5. And again, we get that vision of heaven. And notice what is confessed in heaven. Worthy are you, O Lord, 
and God to receive glory and honor and power. In other words, you are glorious, and, and you are uh, all that is honorable, and, and you are powerful. We just want to tell you. Because what? We have, you have condescended to reveal yourself to us. We have recognized you as holy. Now we're transformed. We're in the, in the very presence of heaven. And, we, and here's what we want to say with those that have known something of your glory ever since the moment we were created, namely the angelic beings. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So again, God acts so that his glory will be known and be celebrated. So God is glorified in, by, and through his creation as its designer and creator. In describing God's work in creation, the Bible states that all three persons of the Godhead have a role in creation. The Genesis account describes God as speaking into the existence all that is. God creates the entirety of the universe out of nothing uh, except the use of his creative word. The creation is created in pristine glory, and its excellence is a display of the excellence of its designer, creator, and ruler. And Paul actually speaks of Jesus this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. By him all things were created, by Jesus. In heaven and on earth, everything that is, all things were created through him and for him. The purpose there is an is. The purpose there is a creation is so that it will ultimately know, proclaim, and enjoy the glory of its Creator, namely Jesus Christ. The very size of creation is a statement of the greatness of the glory of God. Many, maybe most of you, have seen some of the presentations that Louis Giglio put together. and He utilizes these state-of-the-art telescopes to produce these absolutely visually stunning photographs of, of the cosmos that is a testimony to the glory of Almighty God. These presentations emphasize the sheer size of the known universe defies, defies our imagination. The known universe is 90 billion light years Cross. Now I remember science, a light year, a light travels at 186,000 miles per second. I don't know how I remembered that, but I did. But light years, 90 billion light years across. Now I'm not sure how one can comment on the unknown universe, since it's unknown, but it is described as being 23 trillion light years in diameter. To give you a little bit more accessible perspective, the annual solar orbit of the Earth around the sun is 584 million miles. That's a long way. The Earth is 93 million miles from the sun. The sun is large enough that over 1 million Earths would fit inside of it. I may have known that, but I did not remember. that. I knew the sun was much, much bigger. And remember that the sun is a rather average size star. And yet one million Earths would, would fit in, inside of it. It is estimated that there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That is five to ten more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. To give you another little bit of perspective, you know, we've lost sight of what a billion is. We're talking about trillions now. If the sand on the face of the Earth were dollar bills, we could not even begin to pay for what is going on according to the current insanity and the ongoing insanity of those in Washington, D.C. But just to give you some idea of what a trillion is, that 
this, this universe is, is beyond anything that we can... 23 trillion light years. The universe is so vast, yet God is so intimately knowledgeable and involved with that creation that the hairs on your head are numbered. Even the hairs on all heads who've ever lived are numbered. An, an analogy might be that when we see a large and impressive home, we assume that an individual of impressive accomplishments lives in that home. Think lifestyles and rich and famous. Uh, I think I saw this morning or sometime the Biltmore house is 178,000 square feet, testimony to the impressive wealth of, uh, of the Biltmores. Uh, I think the, the biggest uh, house in Alabama is about 50,000 uh, square feet over in Shoal Creek. Uh, I think Richard Scrooge built but never got to live in because he got in trouble. A 35,000 square foot house. Again, why? So you will know, you look at this house and say, man, that guy's the stuff. So there's a sense where God creates this colossally enormous, unimaginable universe. So what? You will know, look at it and just go, wow. What a God. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. In other words, that's just a part of my house. That's just a little bitty portion of my house. What is the house that you would build for me? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. A great cosmos, even just when you think in terms of sheer size, testifies to an even greater creator. The whole earth is full of His glory. The complexity of creation testifies to the excellence of its designer and creator. Just think of the, the human or any other eyeball in its coordination with the brain for the purpose of vision. The complex functionality of that system boggles the mind. Just think of how much coordination it takes at your local subway to make your ham sandwich. If we were to write the instruction manual as to how to get lettuce out of the farmer's ground into that thing at subway and the wheat out of the ground into that bread so they can botch it and give you the wrong sandwich at the end of the day. I mean, again, glitches in the system, even as simple a system has been designed for the sake of making a sandwich. Even though that system is well thought out, think of how many times a day human error enters into the process and there's a failure to produce the right sandwich. Then how complex is it that light reflects off an object and is seen, interpreted, and responded to in the act of seeing. Only a great God could design and build such an incredibly functional and amazingly reliable system. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of His glory. The functionality of creation is a symphonic testimony to the greatness of God. Whether we view creation through a microscope, or a telescope, it displays the glory of its creator. Seeds are placed in the ground only to mysteriously and secretly bust forth in life through the unseen machinations of soil, sun, water, and nutrients acting upon the unseen yet complex life within the seed. The earth remains in its designed orbit, consistently rotating on its unseen axis, warmed by the sun that never overheats or overcools, providing the perfect climate for the sustaining of life. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
the beauty of the creation is the stunning visual testimony to the beauty of his creator. I know uh, Kathy Van Loo has been posting pictures, and I love nature pictures. My, one of my guys is Ansel Adams. Go Google him if you don't know who it is. But I'm amazed. And so it, ha, how many times do we become awestruck at, at, at a sunset? that it, it, It's a daily reminder of the unrivaled, majestic beauty of God. For, for those who have the eyes to see, they can't miss creation's ringing anthem to its creator. Psalm 19.1, again, the earth is resplendent with the glory of God. Tragically, Romans 1.20, now what can be known about God, His invisible attributes? It's been made known to Him by His creation. And fallen man does what? They suppress the knowledge of the truth. They are not. Nobody ever has nor ever will be without a testimony to the greatness and the glory of God. Again, it is sheer nonsense to think that everything or even that anything came from nothing. That nothing, while being nothing, exercised its own non-existent will and power to become everything is more than preposterous. That nothing became everything, that is not only unscientific, it's illogical and irrational. Even insanity. It just simply won't work. God is glorified in the sustaining of His incredible creation. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Chapter 1, verse 3, He, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the He, upholds the universe by the word of His power. In marketing, there's a term called planned obsolescence. That means the stuff you pay good money for wears out, and it's planned so you will buy another. Um, Again, think of your car tires, think of your razor blade, uh, think of your washing machine, uh, think of uh, that iPhone that you bought by the time you cranked your car to leave the, the sales room floor. It's obsolete. All of those things are planned. Uh, how many times a day do I hear my, my batteries run down? My batteries run down. And, and so, again, that, that things uh, that we build wear out and run down. Yet, part of God's design and build program is that the cosmos is sustained in the same way it was created. Creation means its designed properties through the ongoing sustaining power of God's powerful Word. Colossians 1.15, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things keep working like they were designed to do because He's the the master designer and builder. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is glorified through His activity in providence. Providence is a a word and a biblical doctrine that isn't much spoken of in our day. Seldom a week goes by that somebody refers, makes a reference to luck or being lucky, and I accuse them of cursing because, again, what? Luck is a vile pagan term. The Bible knows nothing of blind chance. All things occur within the undergirding, or undergirding, overarching providences of a God who displays His glory in His sovereignty. Make no, no mistake that, that the transcendent, 
the over and the above, the removed God of the Bible hasn't left things to run randomly apart from His sovereign and purposeful superintendence. God is personally involved with and with perfect attention to detail is weaving the tapestry of history as a revelation of Himself, as a testimony to His excellence, and as the intentional outworking of His ultimate purpose of all creation, namely the display of of His glory. History had a glorious beginning, it has a glorious present, and it has a glorious end. Namely, that the God of all providence will be glorified. The purpose of history is that in God's providential working in time and space is that He provide the suitable stage for the presentation of His Creator, Redeemer, and Conquering King, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate. That is the purpose for the isness of all that is. The whole earth, I've heard it said, is full of His glory. God is glorified in salvation. As we have seen previously, all of salvation from its inception to its consummation is of grace and designed to play, display the glory of His grace for the praise of His name. The very reason for the fall. That is the reason that God ordained and by design permitted, and I use that word intentionally and cautiously, advisedly, He permitted the original rebellion in heaven and its entrance and infection in all of creation is for the purpose of His glory through the bringing of the greatest good out of the greatest evil. That is, the ultimate activity through which God is most glorified is the entirely gracious accomplishment and application of salvation to sinners. It is for God's glory that those who justly deserve God's condemnation are saved by His grace. They are forgiven by grace, and that grace through which they are saved is working powerfully to transform those who are saved as the living testimony to God's glorious and graciously applied power, love, justice, and mercy. Those who were previously conformed and enslaved to sin and Satan are being irresistibly and unfailably conformed to the image of Christ. To be sure that conformity won't be perfected in this life, But the powerful seal of the Holy Spirit is the permanent witness that God will complete that which He has begun. This is a living testimony to God's purpose in salvation. Namely, we will be glorified in Him, we will glory in Him, and we will praise Him as we comprehend fully His glory. In His glory, we will be perfectly and joyfully satisfied. We are saved to give testimony that the whole earth is full of His glory. While modern American Christians don't like to think about this, and we sure don't want to talk about it, God will be glorified in condemnation. It is right that God's holy justice and wrath be displayed and expressed upon those who resist His grace and persist in their rebellion against God. While eternal eternal judgment is awful, it is a present warning and will be a permanent testimony to the awful yet glorious reality of God's necessary and perfect justice. God will be glorified in the just condemnation of those who refuse to repent. The contrast between those who are rightly condemned and those who by grace are delivered from the wrath to come will be the permanent testimony to the unrivaled glory of God's grace. Revelation 14 describes the smoke of the torment of the condemned as rising forever and ever. That we who are justified through faith have peace with God, have escaped condemnation, and shall never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord is to be to the praise of His glory 
now and forevermore. Now, while salvation is glorious right here, right now, so glorious that the angels are described in 2 Peter 1.12 as desiring to look in to this matter of redemption. The twin realities of remaining sin and the presence of powerful transformative grace in the life of the believer reminds us of the now and not yet aspect of salvation. While we groan and weep in this life, we do this in the sure confidence that He will wipe away every tear and that all sin, sickness, and death will be destroyed in the consummation of all things. We grieve the tragic realities of a fallen world while at the same time we rejoice in the foretaste of eternal joy. We will be perfected in all of creation while now groaning and anticipation will not only be restored, it will be reworked into a glory that surpasses its original pristine beauty. That sin and Satan do not get the final say. That God through His Son triumphs over all that has opposed Him is to be proclaimed and celebrated in joyful anticipation of the fullest and final expression of His glory. You see that God's salvation accomplished by His Son through grace is a testimony that the whole earth is full of His glory. God's glory, final thing. God's glory is our greatest good. And for that we can give thanks. One aspect of what is called the existential angst. That is the, the deep-seated, maybe unstated longing, that, that, that the desires, the hopes, the fears that we have. There's something within us that says there is one who is greater and that His purpose for His creatures is greater than what can be carnally perceived and pursued. We long for a greater and more satisfying purpose that transcends the mundane and gives to us enduring and joyful meaning in and for life. Thankfully, God is that greater than because He is the ultimate greater than. He gives to us the privilege of living in view of His greatness while life can be a grind, mundane, morbid, but God has intervened and ordained that even the monotonous duties of life can be done to bring glory to God and satisfaction, certainty, and security to our troubled and often perplexed soul. Thankfully, by grace, our lives are far more than Solomon's exasperated vanities. If you'll remember in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, he laments. It's all vanities. Chasing after the wind is meaningless. It's pointless. There's nothing to live for. But even dying is no good. We don't cry out as believers that all is meaningless and that everything is vexation. God has ordained that all of life has a glorious purpose. Whether the chuckles of the frivolous, the dreaded monotony of the common, or the overwhelming griefs of this fallen world, viewed rightly and lived purposely, all of life can be lived for the glory of God. When these trials come and you are preserved and you persevere, it is a testimony that the whole earth is full of His glory. We suffer trials and endure them as a testimony to God's powerful faithfulness. By way of contrast, we experience the most trivial of pleasures to remind us that God's purpose for us is to know perfect, joyful, consuming pleasures in Him and through Him forever. Because the whole earth is 
filled with his glory. We have gathered here today as the visual, physical, and verbal testimony to the glory of God. God commands us to worship him and him alone. Yes, because he is worthy, but also that we would encounter the transformative power of his glory in the encounter described in Isaiah 6. That, that encounter transformed Isaiah from one who was rightly overwhelmed with the reality of his sin to one who recognized the glory of God in his gracious atoning work to one who through the means of worship would not only say, here I am, send me, he'd actually go. He went not with the promise of measurable success, but with the promise of participating in in the glorious purpose of God, established in eternity past, demonstrated in the present, and celebrated in eternity future. So God calls us in the realm of time, space, and history to engage in that which will foreshadow our eternal vocation. And that eternal vocation is worship. Worship is the comprehension and appreciation of the glory of God and the ongoing confession of that truth. In this vocation, not only is the promise of satisfaction in eternity, there is the experience, get this, experience of that satisfaction today. Paul speaks to it in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, of glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Present tense, real-time experience, here and now, right now, we see something of God's glory being worked out among us because the whole earth is full of His glory. John Piper describes God as God-centered. That for God to be anything less than God-centered would make God an idolater. Now that's kind of a strange thing to the modern ear because we, by definition as human beings, are what? Man-centered, which makes all of us what? Idolaters. So God is eternally committed to His glory, that His glory be known, that those who come to know that glory will be satisfied by enjoying Him forever. So instead of being obsessed with the trivialities of the here and now, let us be oriented toward the there and then. It is in the here and now that the there and then will so inform the here and now that by the knowledge we enjoy something of the transforming power of the glory of God he reveals that glory to us that we might rejoice in it for the eternal good of our souls and the rightful expression of our adoration of God for all that He is and all that He has done. So that is why we confess to God be the glory alone. For while He has promised to transform our lowly bodies one day, He has promised to transform what appears to be our lowly existence here. He replaces the lowly with the lofty. Because the whole earth is full of His glory. Indeed, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 that we are outwardly wasting away. And we really are. And I really am. Inwardly, though, we're being renewed. That renewal is the testimony to the glory of God. A glory that we shall fully experience and enjoy when we see Him. For when we see Him, we shall see Him as He is. For we shall be like Him. 1 John 3.2 When we see and embrace the lowly, the common, the difficult, the sorrowful, the mundane as occurring according to and within the outworking of the purpose of all creation, of all of history, all of the work of redemption, we see it as occurring to bring glory 
to God. Then we can begin to celebrate the lofty in the midst of the lowly. Then we are prepared to celebrate and enjoy it and, and, and enjoy and really mean it when we say to God be the glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Because God is glorious, the whole earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. Because of what he says and what he does is glorious. He is glorified in us, and it is right and it is joyful for us to glory in him. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, it will be the source of our eternal confession that indeed you're glorious. You have always been glorious, and you chose to display that glory, to, to make it known, and to give us the privilege through the work of your Son sharing in something of the joy of that glory. May we see, may we experience, may we be transformed by that reality. We ask these things in Jesus' name.